0: Last week I talked about a documentary I watched about a musician. Turns out I watched another documentary, this time about a band. And just like last week, I'm not going to tell you the band. If you really want to know, you can ask me afterwards. Um, But this band is well known. Uh, I think all of you have probably heard of them. Uh, There's a chance that maybe some of you haven't. And I mean, it doesn't mean you know their music, but you've at least heard that name. Now, what's interesting about this band is their association is not what we would always consider good. Um, And they're not the kind of band that you would play in church. Uh, And it's not the kind of band you'd want your teenagers maybe listening to. Um, But I think coming at them from a certain perspective and actually understanding their story makes their music a lot different. But what's interesting is this band... um, is so well known that these guys are famous and their names are forever solidified in their world, in the world of the kind of music they sing. So, who they are is very well known. But what's interesting is this documentary followed this band after 20 years in a very rough point in their career where they didn't even want to talk to each other anymore. Uh, the two main creative people couldn't get along. One guy had to go off to, uh, to rehab for a year and deal with a lot of stuff in his life that he had just not even considered thinking about for 20 years. And what's amazing to me is that these guys didn't matter who they were. They could not make music together until they changed the way they decided to live. They had some things in their lives and within their own relationships with each other and their families that they had to change before they could continue to do what made them famous. And that, to me, is mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing because we look at this group that you've maybe heard of and you maybe know something about, and you look inside of it, and these guys are just like you and me. And it's interesting because they're just like the ancient israelites alan had already done a great job of painting the picture for us of what's going on in zephaniah about how there's a lot of corruption within the leadership of israel and now we fast forward and our reading for today is in luke chapter 3 verses 7 through 18 and again the people of israel are on the edge of corruption They're on the edge of corruption, but there's still people who are faithful, who are waiting for the Messiah. So if you want to open up your Bibles today and follow along with me. In the Pew Bible, the reading is, or starts on page 891, so Luke 3, 17 through 18. Now we pick up last week where we had left off with John the Baptist now what Luke had told us about John the Baptist was that, was that Luke saw John as the messenger who was coming before the Messiah. But then Luke tells us in chapter, verses 7 through 18, he says, Okay, well I've told you who I say John is, now let's see who John made himself to be known to be to the people who came to hear him. So if you want to follow along, starting in chapter 7 of chapter 3 of Luke, this is how it begins. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So this is John's message to the crowd of people who comes to gather around him. But an important question we need to ask is, well, who were these people who came to hear him? Who were the people in the crowd? Now there's a dead giveaway of the majority of the people. Because John says, do not claim to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. So John's audience is Israelites. And like I said, the Israelite people were on the precipice, on the edge of corruption again. And this is why John comes to them With his message. Now, what is the message? Now, we talked about it last week. Remember, it's a message of repentance. The people of Israel, just like in the time of Zephaniah, were on the edge because they were close to corruption, specifically the leaders. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, those in charge, the the, um, Levites who were in charge of the temple worship. They were all on the edge of corruption. So John says you need to come and repent. But the question wasn't just what do we repent of? The question was how is it that these Israelite people think about themselves And what about that does John need to challenge in order to help them repent? Now, this isn't clear to us when we read it. We read this passage, and it says, you brood of vipers, and we think, oh, that's interesting. I don't know what that means, and we keep reading. Now, when I usually read this, I don't actually know what brood is. Now, brood's an English word. So that's not the word that uh, is translated from the Greek. I mean, the Greek word is a word for those who have been born. So what does that mean that brood is? I wouldn't have known this until I looked it up. A brood is actually a word used to describe a young family of animals. Usually, apparently, according to the dictionary I looked at, it's an animal, it's usually birds, but in this case, it's a young family of vipers or snakes. So this is what John says. He says, you want to be identified, crowd, as children of Israel, but I am telling you that you are actually children of vipers. He says, You aren't concerned with calling yourselves children of Abraham. Because if you were, you maybe would be living the fruit of repentance. John calls them a brood of vipers. Because he sees that these Israelites are not living like children of Abraham. He says instead you're living like children of vipers. Now there's something about vipers in the first century that I found interesting that some people thought. There were certain snakes that people in the first century believed would actually eat their way out of their mother's wombs. So this is the contrast. They want to be children of Israel... But instead, John says, you are children of snakes. And you might be those snakes that actually eat your ancestors. See, John says to this crowd, you're not interested in being children of Israel. You're interested in living the way that you want to be, but you want to claim to be children of Israel. Just like those musicians, they had the name... But it didn't matter what their name was. It didn't matter that they were in one of the biggest rock bands of the 80s and 90s. It didn't matter because they couldn't play together until they changed what they were doing. But how often is this how we live? It's more important to us who we are and who people see us to be than the way that we choose to live. Who we are is more important than how we live. But what John is telling his audience in the first century, he's saying, God isn't interested in who you are. He's interested in how you're living, in what you're trying to be. It's not what you were born. It's what you do. So during Advent, ask yourselves, Am I more concerned with who I am, or am I cons- more concerned with how I live? Now, this was John's message. Now, there were people who heard this, and they were very upset. John eventually, if we read in chapter nine, or verse 19 of this passage, which we don't get to, Herod eventually uh, arrests John and then he is beheaded because of what he says about Herod so John upset a lot of people but there were people who responded to John's message now the question we also need to ask ourselves is well if we're supposed to be concerned with who we how we live more than how who we are well then the question should be well then how do we do that now continuing in verse 10 this is what the crowd also asked John they said in verse 10 what should we do then the crowd asked And John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. So this first question, very general, any person who's there says, well, what should we do? And John says, well, you, if you have excess, should share with people who don't. So here's a question. Are we people of excess? I mean, I think if for most of us, and this is probably safe to say about almost all of us here, look around your house, and even if you don't have excess money, one of the questions you might need to ask, well, why don't I? And if you look around your house, you might see why. There's a lot of stuff around that we might not need. I know one thing that Megan and I struggle with is we get this food, and then it sits in our fridge, and then we're too tired to cook it, so we just go out to eat. So then we have all this food that we get rid of. And that's a choice, and that's the reality of having kids, and, and we could probably do better. But that's a really weird way to say, well, what is it that we do, and where do we have excess, and how do we actually use what we have extra of? John simply says, if you want to live like children of Israel, look around. What do you have extra of? What can you give to people? And then continuing to verse 12, there's a more specific question. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, Teacher, they asked, what should we do? And this is what John says. He says, don't collect any more than you are required to. Tax collectors were very despised in the first century because they would collect more taxes or more money than was actually due in taxes. And then they would keep that money for themselves. And they would also show no mercy to people. Even people who were clearly in a situation where they couldn't pay taxes because they were in a situation where they weren't able to have an income. Those people would then have the full force of the law put against them because of their inability. Tax collectors were not well liked. But John says, Don't cheat people. Only collect what is due. Simply do what you're asked and don't take advantage of your situation. And then in verse 14, Then some soldiers asked him, And what should we do? And John replied, Don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. So soldiers would be stationed places and then they would get unruly and restless. So they would accuse people and they would extort money from people. They would use their position to threaten people. And then they would also rebel when they weren't happy with their pay. And there's history of this in the Roman Empire. John simply says, don't use your position unfairly and be happy with what you receive. The simple idea that John says, how do you live as children of Israel, is to put people first. How do you live as children of Abraham rather than children of vipers? You put other people's needs before your own. So the question is, we think about, well, what does it look like to repent and then live a life of repentance during Advent as we anticipate Jesus' arrival? The answer is simply, we put other people first and live the fruit of repentance. So John wanted the crowd to repent, and he wanted them to turn from their own old ways he wanted them to care more about what they did than who they were. But how does this connect to Jesus' arrival? Because some of the people in John's world thought John was the Messiah. And this is even what they say in Luke 3.15. The people were waiting expectantly and were wondering if they're, in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. But John answered them all. He said, I baptize you with water. But the one who is more powerful than I will come the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. So John quickly says, I am not the Messiah. The one who is the Messiah, I am not even worthy to be his servant. And John says, I baptize with water, but the Messiah will baptize in a different way. And this is what he says about the Messiah. Continuing in verse 16, he says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So John says the Messiah will come and he's not going to baptize you with water. He's like, I'm only baptizing with water. The Holy Spirit is coming. He will baptize you. Or the Messiah is coming. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So these are simple allusions to Old Testament prophecies about the arrival of the Messiah. The Holy Spirit is an important theme because it's about the Spirit of God being poured out on his people. And this was something that the Messiah, when the Messiah came, was talked about. But before we talk about that, let's talk about Jesus coming with fire and the chaff being separated from wheat. So this is an image we don't understand. But in Israel, what they would do is they'd have wheat that needed to be separated from the rest of the plant. And one way they would do that is they would throw it into the air and let the wind blow away the lighter stuff, and then the wheat would fall to the ground because it was heavier. And then they would take the chaff, what wasn't wheat, and they would burn it. And then they would have the wheat so they could mill it into grain or mill it into flour, and use it for other purposes. So this is the image that the Messiah is being painted doing. He will separate the good from the bad. The vipers will be pulled from among the children of God. Because the Messiah must purify his people so that he can lead them into the will of God. Repentance is important before the Messiah arrives because Jesus cares about what we do. That's important to him. He cares about how we treat other people, he cares about how we live and how we do our jobs. He's like, You might be a soldier, but you better be a soldier that's like a child of Abraham, not a son of a viper. So John wanted the crowds who came to see him to know that being a Jew wasn't going to cut it. It wasn't simply being Jewish. This is important for us to hear. It's not simply being born into a Christian family and being baptized and confirmed. That doesn't cut it either. It's not about who we are, but what we do. Now, this is the thing. Now, if you've known the Israelite history, you're like, well, wait a minute. This is what the Jews were supposed to do, but they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. Why did Jesus have to come? The Jews couldn't do it. And now you're sitting here and telling me that we need to be considered, we need to consider how we live too. But we can't do it either. But this is where the Holy Spirit comes in. The one thing that we miss, or it's easy to overlook, The Holy Spirit's arrival indicates something very important that I think we take for granted. The Holy Spirit comes, and what that means is that God has come to live in the presence of His people. Now, this is something we take for granted, but in the ancient Israel, the only place that God lived was in the temple. First the tabernacle, then the temple. The only place you could encounter God's presence was in the temple but then Jesus comes and he says the Holy Spirit's coming and he's going to live in every single one of you who follow me God is with his people he is in the presence of his people he is here with all of us we no longer have to go to the temple he's right in our temples our body and this is why In verse eighteen, it says, "And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them—the good news that God was coming to live with His people. What they were waiting for: that God was coming to live with His people." So now we get to the pink candle. Anyone ever wonder why we have the pink candle on the third week of Advent? It's because it's the week of joy. There's a special name for it, I can't say. I don't remember what it is. It's a Catholic and Anglicans use it and maybe certain Lutheran churches. Gratitude Sunday or something like that, but it's not quite that. The good news of Advent is that Jesus is coming to dwell with his people and this should bring joy. As, As Alan told us, about Zephaniah, and as it begins in verse three fourteen, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. Why do you rejoice? Because your God is coming to dwell with you. He is going to be in your midst. Listen again to this part from Zephaniah sixteen or three sixteen through seventeen. Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands lay limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. So even though God calls us to repent, and it's so easy as for us just to focus on the repent and and judgment and the negative things, there's no reason for us to fear Jesus' judgment. But we should rejoice that he's coming. Because our God is with us, and our God saves us, and he delights in us, he will not rebuke us, and he will sing over us. Put another way, rejoice, we need not fear, because Jesus has come near. Rejoice, we need not fear, because Jesus has come near. So John warned the people in the first century. He said the Messiah is coming. He's like, you better be ready. Right now you're acting like children of vipers. I want you to live like children of Abraham. God's going to come and purify you, and if you're ready, you're going to be ready to follow him. But all this repentance and judgment isn't a bad thing because it means that God is coming to live with us. God who delights in us, God who wants to sing over us. And most importantly, the God who wants us to help live, who wants to help us live as children of Abraham. This is why we rejoice and we do not fear, because Jesus has come near. So, repentance is an an important part of this week's sermon and last week's I think it's important for all of us to recognize that we need to turn from our ways to follow Jesus and that's what repentance is about but we cannot forget the Holy Spirit is among us He dwells in us and by the grace of God He helps us to live So while we are in Advent this year, consider, again, what you might need to turn from in your life. How you might need to live differently as a child of Abraham. Jesus wants us to follow him, and he will help us to live the way he has asked us to live. But first, we need to recognize our need to turn and follow. Rejoice, we need not fear, because Jesus is has come near. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you as your people. And we thank you that you've come within our midst. And while we reflect on that this Advent season, while we anticipate the celebration of that time when you came to dwell with us, And as we consider when your son will come again and then dwell with us in the new heavens and new earth, may you help us to, while we wait, to repent. Help us to live as children of Abraham. Help us to follow your son. And for those of us who aren't sure if we're following, may you convict our hearts and call us to you. May you call us home to be one of your people, where our lives and our stories make sense and our passions are used to make a world better while we wait for your son's return. We ask this all in your son's name, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.